Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. We are going to be in Zechariah 4 today, so Old Testament, pretty close to the start of the New Testament. Uh, This book is one of the five post-exilic books in the Old Testament, the other four being Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Malachi. These books cover the initial resettlement of Judah. And as you recall, both the northern and southern kingdoms were taken into captivity. The north was captured by the Assyrians, whereas the south was captured by the Babylonians. Um, Judah in the south was taken captive in three successive groups, right? So it wasn't all at once, it was kind of waves. Um, After 70 years in exile, some of the Jews were allowed to return to Judah and rebuild. This post-exile return happens in three waves, just like they went there, and it covers roughly about 80 years. The first company returns under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and inspired by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they eventually rebuild the temple. Sixty years later, the second wave returns from Babylon underneath the leadership of Ezra. And 14 years later, Nehemiah leads a third group and oversees the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Now, it's important to remember what these small companies of Israelites are returning to. Uh, in Second Chronicles 36, and Second Chronicles really overlaps with Ezra. So if you want to kind of just go read the last of Chronicles right into Ezra, and it, there's a clear narrative there. But we find a description of what happened to Judah. Therefore, the Lord brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers. He brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. So the southern kingdom was brutally depopulated. The temple was laid to waste, and all of its defenses were destroyed, and all its wealth was carried away. Judah was reduced to a pile of smoldering ashes, and that's all that remained there for 70 years. In Nehemiah 1, we have this recorded. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, or Hananiah, whatever, one of my brothers and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Lord who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there is in the providence who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach and the walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and I mourned and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So its condition was that of a desolate land populated by a handful of unprotected, often terrified farmers due to being surrounded by cruel enemies. It was a sad situation. Hence, Nehemiah and many like him mourned the desolation of Judah. And they heard what was going on there, and they're very sad. 
But there was a reason to be hopeful. God himself made a promise of restoration in Jeremiah 33. It reads, Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I'll heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by Hang on here. By which they have sinned against me and by which they had transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise and glory before all the nations of earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace I make for it. Thus says the Lord yet again, there will be heard in this place of which you say it is a waste without man and without beast. That is in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man, without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. There will again be in this place, which is waste, um, without man or beast, in all its cities, a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. If you look at the state of Judah with a human eye, there was no reason to be hopeful at all. It was a wasteland. However... If you look at it with the eyes of faith, with a heart that knows that God keeps his promises, there was reason to be very optimistic. God said he would restore it, and he will. So that is what these books cover, the beginning of God's faithful restoration of Judah. Zechariah, what we are looking at today, takes place in the early years of the resettlement. They were about to lay the foundation of the temple, or excuse me, they were able to lay the foundation of the temple in the first two years. But the construction had stopped for 18 years due to the Samaritans frustrating their attempts. These guys are, didn't want them to be able to rebuild. Therefore, God speaks through his prophet to encourage the Jews in their labors, which is where we pick up today in Zechariah 4. Please stand, actually, as we read this. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lamp all of gold with its bowl on the top of it. And it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel, who will become a plain? He will bring forth the top stone, which shouts grace 
grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So this is the fifth of six visions given to the prophet Zechariah. Uh, each of these visions were designed both to comfort and stir up the Jews to their work. And so it is with this one. Uh, the prophet's given a vision of a golden lampstand. And there's two olive trees. We know that there was a golden lampstand in the temple. And that they had started to lose faith that they would ever fully rebuild the temple. So God shows him something like what would be in the heart of a completed temple. But it's more than that, really. He says that there were seven spouts to the lamps on the top, and also there were two olive trees. So this is a lampstand which is constantly supplied by the abundance of oil. It's always burning. Uh, And in verses 4 and 5, the prophet doesn't understand their significance. So the angel uh, that... The angel explains that this lampstand is a symbol of God's word to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Therefore, the lampstand represents God's power at work in his covenant people. That's what it represents. The lampstand is a symbol of the church, both old and new. In Revelation 1, John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like uh, burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. So John's given this vision of Jesus. And in that vision, he's in the middle of these seven lampstands, which clearly represent the seven churches that John's to uh, uh, speak to. And so God dwells in his church and his spirit is the source of its power. That's the point. Remember what Christ said to Peter. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. And that's exactly what's being communicated uh, to these discouraged Jews. These men were looking soberly at real- the reality of their situation. Their numbers were not large. There, there weren't a whole lot of them. They had no army. They had few friends. They were surrounded by many aggressive enemies. Their ability to protect themselves was greatly limited. And as they went down the pro and con list, the cons were winning. But they forgot the greatest pro. God is for them. Remember the great rhetorical question Paul asked in Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. God was for them. He was their might and power. This wouldn't be the first or last time God delivered his people 
through strange ways. In the Exodus, God raises up a Jewish redeemer in Moses in the very house that ordered him to be killed along with the other Hebrew babies. It's weird. God then proceeds to deliver the Hebrews and destroy the Egyptians in a most fantastic way. I mean, in terms of might and power, Pharaoh was doing good. And it didn't do him any good, but he came against the Lord. But God doesn't always work in these huge, crazy ways. It's not always some hand writing on a wall or a sun stopping in the sky. He does do that, and it's amazing. It demonstrates his power over creation. But a lot of times he works in a much more subtle way, and such was the case with the resettlement. Matthew Henry's words here are really, really helpful. He says, But they were brought out of Babylon into Canaan the second time by the Spirit of the Lord of hosts working upon the Spirit of Cyrus, and inclining him to proclaim liberty to them, and working upon the spirits of the captives, and inclining them to accept the liberty offered them. It was by the Spirit of the Lord of hosts that the people were excited and animated to build the temple. And therefore they, said to be, they are said to be helped by the prophets of God, because they, as the Spirit's mouth, spoke to their heart. It was the same Spirit that the heart of Darius was inclined to favor and further that good work, and that the sworn enemies of it were infatuated in their counsels, so that they could not hinder it as they designed. Note, the work of God is often carried on very successfully, when yet it is carried on very silently, and without the assistance of human force, the gospel temple was built, not by might or power, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but by the Spirit of the Lord of hosts, whose work whose work on men's conscience is mighty to be to the pulling down of strongholds. Thus the excellency of the power is of God and not of man. So the way of gods are mysterious. Sometimes he works in these grand fashions where the Red Sea is crushing Pharaoh and his army. Other times he works through very subtle ways, through moving pagan kings to say, yeah, go back. Resettle Jerusalem. Build up the temple. Here's all your articles. All you need, go do it. The spirit moving in the inner works of people. He directs everything. The course of the most powerful rivers and the inner workings of a man's mind. He's sovereign over everything. And he is for us. God is for his people. It's easy to forget that. It's very easy to forget that. That's why he says, What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace to it, or grace, grace to it. And our times are, are filled with challenges that seem insurmountable. They seem like great mountains. Uh, the condition of society and the church is very discouraging right now. And I'll give you two examples just from this week. Um, first, the APA, the American Psychological Association, released its first set of official guidelines for working with boys and men. They started on this in 2005. They've already have one out for uh, girls and women. Uh, so these guidelines will be used by psychologists, therapists, counselors, and will certainly influence uh, the policies of different government agencies. Uh, here's what the New York Times reported on the guidelines. I read some of it. It's pretty 
difficult language of places. But here's what the New York Times said. The guidelines, 10 and all, posit that males who are socialized to conform to traditional masculinity ideology are often negatively effective in terms of mental and physical health. They acknowledge the idea that ideas about masculinity vary across cultures, age groups, and races, but they point to common themes like anti-femininity, achievement, a skewal of the appearance of weakness, and adventure, risk, and violence. So they're saying for boys to be traditionally masculine is a bad thing. It's bad for their mind. It's bad for their health. Anti-femininity. What they mean there is that boys don't want to be women. Is that bad? Is it negative that boys don't want to be girls? It's negative that boys want to achieve and be strong? Is that your struggles in your household, fathers and mothers? Trying to get your boys to achieve. Don't you want to achieve more? It's negative that boys are driven to rule and subdue the earth and therefore are driven towards adventure, risk, and violence. You think boys are like that? God said, go shake the earth. Where does that start? By your sons digging in your flower garden. That's where it starts. Boys want to fight. Why? The world's full of uh, of the serpent seed, right? The world's full of fallen people. God said, keep and protect the garden. It's still, it's still built into us. This is insane. This is nuts. This is crazy. To be a man now is toxic. So first it was toxic masculinity. And then it's like, eh, masculinity is toxic. So that's... Where we're going right now, it's hard to it's hard to believe that this is how fast we've we've gotten. But we're here, and this stuff is going to be it's going to be mainstream through public schools. It will be, and uh, government agencies. I could think of many evil ways that this could potentially be used. I could imagine them using these guidelines to disqualify Christians from adopting because they hold to traditional masculinity ideology. I can imagine this being used as grounds to remove children from homes as raising boys up with traditional masculinity ideology is destructive. We've got to protect them. Now, will it come to that? I hope not. But it demonstrates just how corrupt our society has become. It's, it's how, how much they hate God and hate his created order and his design. It's... Boy, girl, binary, piece of cake, zero, one. Right? We know how plugs work. It's simple. That is, there's nothing hard. In the beginning, God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. And our society is warring against it. And it's not just society, it's the church. Even our own denomination. Even our own denomination. Which brings me to my second example. I was told by a friend earlier this week, that there was a PCA church hosting an event on a Sunday afternoon where a homosexual woman actively in a homosexual relationship would teach on how we can celebrate the lives of transgenders, people. I was told that. Now, it seemed a little far-fetched to me, um, which shows how optimistic even I can be at times. So, I, you know, I, I took to Google, 
And I checked the church calendar. I didn't see anything there. And I thought maybe he's misunderstood or whatever. But he's a smart guy. So I started digging a little deeper. And indeed, it is absolutely true that South City Church, a PCA church, is hosting an event sponsored by Faith for Justice where J. Marie Hill is to teach them how to not only mourn the tragic deaths of trans, it's bad, it's bad to kill people, no matter where they come from. We all agree that everyone bears the image of God. And they don't stop there, but learn to celebrate their lives and humanity, their lives. God hates the, li- the life defined by any sin, right? As part of their MLK 2019 celebration on uh, January 20th. Now, you need to know that this church isn't merely the host. I knew they would say that. Oh, we're just hosting. We're just renting the facility. The pastor of the church is on the board of Faith for Justice. And the director of worship at the church started Faith for Justice. The director of worship is also the pastor's daughter. There's extremely close ties. Men are in beautiful mind where they walk in that room and he's lost his mind. And there's like that wall where he's got all the strings connecting all the related things. It's like a big conspiracy. On my wall, there's like two strings, right? These are very close. Not going all Alex Jones conspiracy weird on you here, guys. Moreover, his daughter is well known for very heretical views and crazy things, she says all the time. The daughter which he works with every week as his worship leader. In 2015, she made the following statements at a youth conference. Some of you know that shirt. I met God. She is black. Does anybody have that shirt? I have, to, I have got to get me one. Have you met God? Do you know him? She's black. Do you know Jesus? Jesus is a trans person of color. This is a director in a PCA church who holds an MDiv from Covenant. And it needs to be noted that her father is a prof at CTS, a Covenant Theological Seminary, our denomination's uh, seminary, and the dean of students. This is one of the men responsible for shaping the future leaders of our denomination. Take a look at the shape his daughter has taken. Now, look, I hate talking this way. I really do. I don't even want to talk about this, but I feel like it's necessary. To point this stuff out. It isn't just one denomination or church either. So I caused quite a stir putting this stuff out online. And when OPC, you know, OPC minister said, looks like South City is equipping the Lord's people to love their neighbors as themselves and to do good to all people. Affirming the inherent value of LGBTQ image bearers and defending their lives as precious precious doesn't mean we've affirmed their sexual ethic. I'm deeply concerned about the unchecked gossip, malice, unwholesome speech, and uncharitable assumptions that pass themselves as public discourse. Then he goes on to say, this is a much greater threat to the souls of conservative Presbyterians than South City being too kind to transgender folk. All I shared was the facts, cut and paste, very little commentary. I wasn't gossiping. This is all public stuff. Had I not found the public stuff, I would have never said anything. And are we opposed to loving transgender people? Absolutely not. Repent and know the Lord. 
Right? Such were some of us. God has delivered us from sin. So listen. Listen to the speaker. The speaker at South City's event has a position with the ACLU. You know, always quick to defend Christianity they are. Here's what her title is. Transgender Education and Advocacy Program Coordinator. I wonder what she's going to talk about as she teaches us to celebrate the lives of transgender. She's going to teach them to tell them to repent and turn to Jesus? Is that what they advocate at the ACLU these days? All I did was post public information. And it was written off as um, hyperbole going... But this is exactly what's happening. And there's worse parts, but I'm just not going to share it on the Lord's Day because there's just some things we shouldn't talk about. But I was also told that the Tennessee Valley Presbytery um, in the PCA voted yesterday to urge Missouri Presbytery to investigate Memorial PCA's role in the Revoice Conference. And the uh, acquaintance of mine that was there said the vote was extremely close and the debate was long. The vote was close? And heavily debated to merely urge the presbytery to investigate? Merely urge them to investigate? They didn't tell them to do anything. Hey, you might want to check on this. Yeah, I think so. You might want to. That's a good idea. Again, it's, it's very discouraging to see once great institutions be reduced to smoldering piles of ash. And we're watching that happen right now. The West is in a rough state. And the challenges are huge. But God, but God can turn a mountain into a plain. So I remain optimistic. God can take a woman like Sarah with a dead womb and make her the mother of a nation. God can take a few fishermen and a tax collector and start a movement that turns the world upside down. The nation of Israel and the true Israel had small beginnings. So it is with times of restoration. They have small starts. And you can become discouraged as you look back on the former glorious times. That's what us confessionalists love to do. Look back on the glorious times. We can turn our churches into museums. As opposed to the continuing work of the Holy Spirit that he's been doing in his church for a long, long time. And that's a theme that comes up a lot in the post-exilic books, how discouraged they are when they're looking backwards. For example, Ezra 3. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's household, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. While many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. The young people who'd come into this burnt down land, 
And they see the temple foundation being laid. They see a promising future. And they are praising God. The old people grieved over what had been lost. And there's a place to grieve over things that have been lost. But we need to be careful to see what the Lord is doing. How God is restoring his church, building his church up. Listen to Haggai 2. God says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem like nothing in comparison? So they eventually do build the temple. And guess what? Not very impressive. Not compared to the old one. He continues, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea also and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What if I told you that he wasn't really speaking about the, the temple? If the temple is gone, it was destroyed a couple times, but definitively in 70 AD. He's speaking of the temple of his people, the restoration that starts after the exile is the beginning of, of, of finds its fulfillment in the church, spreading out over the whole world. First Peter says, in coming to him as to living stones, which has, been, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The destruction of the temple ended up being a good thing. It's strange how God so often moves his people forward through what appears to be failure or disaster. The cross. It did not look good. But it was. Think of the martyrdom of Stephen, this powerful deacon, man of great character. They kill him and then they persecute Jerusalem. And that would seem like a bad thing, but what happens? Chapter 8 of Acts, they go out preaching the gospel. It's that old, old illustration. Supposedly, I don't know if this is true or not. It sounds fake, but it's a good illustration. Of um, starfish. They were eating clams or something. So when they would bring the starfish up, they'd cut them and throw them back in the water. And supposedly, I don't know, you kids that watch Wild Kratts can correct me here. Um, supposedly, that, you know, they're bilateral and that, that makes two starfish, right? So they're like making more starfish. They're eating more clams or whatever starfish eat. And so that's Christians a lot of times when we're persecuted. We just multiply. There's more of us. It led to the gospel being sent out and to the eventual conversion of the Apostle Paul. We have to have spiritual eyes. We often are trying to preserve the past when God has a greater future in store for us. We struggle with this because he likes to do things in his ways. And his ways often are very humble and small. That's why he says, For who has despised the day of small things? It is easy.
to despise the day of small things when we're trying to restore things. I did not grow up in a strong Christian home. Some of you didn't either. And you are laying new foundations, rebuilding them, rebuilding your family line, hopefully to be a name that fears the Lord, right? Morrison, Miller, West, Howards. Hopefully these will be names associated with uh, children and grandchildren that love Jesus. And you're building that. But it's, it's small. It's got a beginning. It's a small beginning. Churches are the same way. Right? Churches start small. And I always think of when people come here with teenagers, I almost know they're going to leave for certain. Because people with teenagers really, really want there to be other teenagers at the church. Which we would eventually have. Well, we're going to have it anyway. We're, home, we're doing it the hard way. Just having kids and letting them age. But if they would stay the next family that came with teenagers, we'd have teenagers. We just could get one to stay. Right? But right now, Sarah or Anna and Zeke's got to do all the heavy lifting for us. So, But you have to see. see look at the church. This church will love your teens. We'll preach to you. Like, have some vision. See what we're doing. Right? Stay. Put down some roots. Grow with us. But it's easy to despise small things. Right? Investments, savings, weight loss. Any start like that. Spiritual disciplines start very small. Denominations start very small. You can look up the first presbytery. What year? Do you know? 1706. It's not 09? Okay. You're fresh on it. 1706. Yeah, it was, it was what, four churches? It was just a handful of churches. Four, seven. Things start small. And look what that did to America. It, it shaped the whole thing. Do not despise the day of small things. God loves to work in small things. God is going to do amazing things if, in, in your family if you fear Him. God's going to do amazing things in this church if we fear Him. We need to put our faith in Him, not in our might, in our power, but in His power. His Holy Spirit's in us. His Holy Spirit, he strengthens us to love His Word, to hate sin, to have boldness, to preach His gospel, to stand against incredible challenges. Babylonian Empire, dust. Egyptian Empire, dust. Rome, dust. They're all gone. They tried to kill us. They can't stop us. We're God's people. We're his church. He's in us. His will will be done. No one will frustrate it. Stop looking at your own resources. Look to the Lord and be encouraged. Yeah, society is a mess. And it's probably best that you only read news like once a week. Right? Just scan it real quick and move on with your life. But we often wither under seemingly unsurmountable challenges. And this is because we view our own power as our primary resources. And if that is the case, then the challenges are really insurmountable. You will fail. There is no hope if that is the case. However, God's spirit does work in his people, at work in, in his people to accomplish 
His purposes. There is no such thing as an insurmountable challenge for God. Therefore, we should soldier forward in faith, knowing that the battle is the Lord's. And it often pleases him to accomplish his will through works that have very small beginnings. So, brethren, do not despise the day of small things. It is the way God works, especially in periods of restoration. And it appears that we are living in such a time. So may God increase our faith. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are a lover of us, that you take care of us, that we are your bride and you nourish and cherish us as if, well, you take care of your church. Uh, and Jesus nourishes us and cherishes us as if we were his own body. He is our head. And we need not fear those in the world with their plots to try to usurp your, your rule. You laugh at them from heaven. And you will dash them all to pieces with your rod, Lord. And you will establish Zion. You will bring glory to your name. We don't have to be scared of the APA. We don't have to be crushed by the state of the church in America because we know you're faithful, God, and that you will raise up prophets and teachers and just members that love you and fear you, God. And we pray that we would be faithful, Lord, that we wouldn't just be looking for sin out there, but for the sin that's in our own heart, Lord, that we would keep short accounts with you and with one another, Lord, and that Trinity could be a beacon right now, a city on a hill, Lord, Um, and that your glory would shine from her. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.